welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Last year's virtual convention forced us to postpone the Hall of Fame banquet. In order to celebrate the 2021 class, we did a series of podcasts with the inductees. We're using Christmas break here to reissue last year's episodes to once again celebrate the 2021 class. We're so excited for the Chicago convention to be able to honor the 2021 and 2022 classes at the Hall of Fame banquet on Friday, January 7th. We can't thank all of you enough for your continued trust and support. I hope you all enjoy listening to these legends of the game. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844 844- 620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Our next guest on the ABCA podcast is Wayne Graham. This is the fifth installment of our ABCA Hall of Fame podcasts. Coach Graham coached for 38 seasons between high school, San Jack, and Rice University. After diving into his accomplishments, he may be in the top five for coaches of any sport. In 11 seasons at San Jack, he won 675 games, had an 875 winning percentage, and they won five national championships in six seasons. He was named JUCO Coach of the Century by Baseball America. That would be good enough to get him in the conversation as one of our best coaches, but in 1992, he took over the Rice University job, a program which had seven winning seasons and no postseason appearances in 78 years. From 1995 to 2017, Rice made 23 straight regional appearances and seven College World Series appearances. They also went 20 straight years of winning a region- regular. They also went 20 straight years of winning a regular season or conference tournament championship. In 2003, Rice won the national championship, which was the first one in any sport in Rice's 91-year history. He embodies winning and also balance. He had a keen recruiting eye for finding diamonds in the rough. There are so many great nuggets dropped by Coach Graham in this one. Big shout out to his wife, Tanya, for getting the Zoom chat lined up for us. Let's welcome Coach Graham to the podcast. Here with Wayne Graham, long time, uh, shoot, played pro ball for, for 10, 11 years, high school coach for 10, San Jack for 11, and Rice for 26 or 27 seasons? 27, yeah. 
tremendous. Um, and uh, I think the total should come to about 47 years. David Pierce recently, who was a coach at Texas, figured it all out because he was introducing me on the podcast too, or a Zoom. <laughs> I get confused. Yep. And I'm just looking through everything that you did, um, and we'll get into it. You know, you get done playing professional baseball and you go right into high school. Was that the decision for you once you got done playing that you were going to coach high school or did you have other plans? It was an entirely different decision than that. I still needed 48 hours to graduate from Texas. So I had drafting skills that I'd gained while playing pro ball. That was my uh, winter job. And so uh, I worked for uh, Gulf Interstate for 64 hours a week for a year to save the money uh, to go back to Texas. I went back to Texas, got the additional 48 hours with the idea of just becoming a teacher. But when I got a teaching job, you couldn't get a job in Austin. I could not get a job, I had to move. So I moved to Houston, got a teaching job with a Texas ex who was a football coach. And he said, yeah, I'll hire you. You wanna coach baseball? And uh, you know, the, the line coach who was coaching baseball at Scarborough High School, didn't want it. So I got the head baseball job in high school. And that's, and then once I got on the field, I realized, Hey, this is what I really want to do. Teach and coach baseball. And then how did going to San Jack come about? Well, at Scarborough high school, we weren't supposed to be playing in the league we were playing in. We didn't have any enrollment, but HI Houston independent school district wanted us to play in that league. So we wouldn't have to travel. And yet we were able to win the district championship six out of eight years. So that was my pro reputation. And I, I went one year to Spring Ranch and that's where we beat Clemens for the district title. We beat Roger for the district title. When I was at Spring Branch, he was at Spring Woods. So the branching from one high school to another, the fact that I had a master's degree, I had all the qualifications and plus there was a friend of mine who knew the AD at, who recommended me at San Jack. And lo and behold, I got the job. It was kind of remarkable, actually. I just happened to have all the right credentials at the right time. And I decided I wanted to, uh, you know, go somewhere where it would be predominantly coaching baseball. I had to teach at San Jack some. And, and so that that was the biggest thing is is being able to coach a little bit more rather than having to teach as much as you were in high school. Yeah, I was having to teach for nine years. I taught four history classes every day and coached football and baseball. I was busy. What were your biggest challenges then? You go from, from high school to, to San Jack. What were the biggest differences for you going from high school to junior college coaching, or, or were there any? Probably not hardly any because I'd already had the pro thing, you know, and the first year I was at San Jack, Pat Gillick with the Toronto Blue Jays, who had been a roommate in professional baseball asked me if I wanted to coach manage medicine hat in uh, the pioneer league. Well, that's the only year that I managed in summer ball. I managed medicine hat in the pioneer league and we had a winning record and I just, the school threatened if I ever did that again, I wasn't going to have a job there. So I had to make a choice and I stayed at San Jack and it worked out pretty well. Roger would come pitch for you, even though you beat him in the district in high school. Roger didn't have any scholarships. I was the one who liked him. He, uh, 
In fact, Charlie Mariano, who is his high school coach, a legendary guy, called me and asked me if I could get Texas to take him. And they said, no, he didn't throw hard enough. He only threw 85 on the jugs gun. And, uh, but he threw strikes and he was incredibly motivated and he was a little chubby and he took all that off. And, and the year I had him at San Jack, he, he advanced from, I think, 84 on the jugs gun to 92, which now Texas wanted him. And they took him <laughs> while I was at Medicine Hat. They took him, which was okay. Roger wanted to go to Texas. How much of that did you have to deal with at San Jack where guys were leaving a little bit early or did most of your guys stay with you the two years at San Jack? Most stayed. Uh, that was a rare case. In fact, I don't know that anyone left after one year except to either sign or, you know, that was it. Continue to play. And then, that you know, Rice comes calling. You have a, a ton of success at San Jack. Uh, five national championships in six years. Was there – I mean, Rice hadn't had any success up to that point, had only had seven winning seasons in 78 years. Was there a chance that you stay at San Jack rather than going to Rice? Or, you know, was it, okay, I'm going to try the Division One thing out now? Me and my wife both realized this was probably going to be our last chance. And I'd always wanted to coach division one. And I was 55 years old when I went to San. I mean, when I went to Rice, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so we felt it was our last chance. And I was a, from Houston. I knew the high school coaches, knew the college coaches and junior college coaches. And I thought we could be successful. What, what what made you think? I mean, just you, because you've had success in anywhere that you were at, was that more of it? Because I don't, I don't think people probably thought that was possible when you look at Rice's history up to that point. I mean, what really made you think that, okay, I can go get Rice's program turned around? No, they had never been to the playoffs before. No, They'd not never... once. In 78 years, not one. Yeah, and I just thought uh, my – well – Partly, it was just wanting a job at the Division One level, and I knew Rice. I thought I knew Rice, and when I got there, I found out it was a little more difficult to get people in than I thought. It was quite difficult. And uh, but you know, we uh, I, I had a pretty good eye for talent, and we really did it basically with diamonds in the rough, like Neiman uh, Townsend, who I converse with here in Austin all the time. And, uh, you know, the, most of the people that became stars at Rice were diamonds in the rough. Cruz was an exception, but Berkman was pretty much a diamond in the rough. You know, he wasn't recruited anywhere but by junior colleges. I'll tell you what, he and I played against each other in the Cape, and um, man, oh man, oh man, when he showed up at Wareham, um, you could tell there was going to be something in there. And uh, I got a chance to watch you guys in 1997 at the College World Series. Hey, how long did you wear batting gloves when you hit infield outfield? Uh, I don't even remember. I didn't wear any pro ball. I know that. <laughs> I yeah, loved but... it that you were out there hitting in and out still. Um, I, I thought it was the best thing ever, and I just got finished playing. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? If I ever get into coaching like that, that's what I want to be. I want to be like Coach Graham because he's out there still doing it. Um, you know, you talked about your eye for talent. I, I think that's a knack of recruiters. 
and your your numbers back it up of the amount of guys that you had that were really high draft picks at the schools that you coached at that weren't drafted out of high school. What what did you gravitate to when you watched a high school kid that maybe some other guys couldn't see that you could see that okay in in two or three years he's going to look a lot different than he looks right now. Oddly enough, uh, Steve Smith come into my office years later. You know Steve Smith that was at Baylor. Yes, sir. And he asked me, he asked me, why did you recruit Neiman, Umber, and Townsend? He asked me that question. He said, because I could have had all of them. And I said, well, uh, I thought they had something we could develop. Now, Umber was the furthest along. He was the only one who was drafted. I think he was drafted in the 21st round. And he, but Townsend, you know, we didn't know whether he was going to be a pitcher or a hitter. I, I still talked to him the other day about that. And Neiman, nobody was after him. I think Baylor offered him books. That was the extent of his scholarship offers. Townsend didn't have any offers from a Division I school. Uh, Umber, after we signed him to a big scholarship, some other, or, you know, he committed. Some other schools contacted him because Umber was a little further along. He could throw the curveball over the plate and, you know. But uh, we always, I always looked at it, you know, uh, Yanish, who's coaching there now, Yanish was a shortstop pitcher in high school, and we actually thought he was going to be a pitcher because Yanish in high school could go over 90. And uh, <clears throat> I saw him playing out at Rice in a select team later after we'd already signed him, and I said, man, that's going to be our shortstop because he was playing <laughs> shortstop, and the ball found the center of his glove every time. It was remarkable. So, you know, you, you got to keep an open mind, but you all, if you're going to operate a school rock rice, a lot of it is going to have to be developmental. And I know how hard it is. I've been at places that didn't have a history of winning that you're trying to get turned around, but you show up there in 92 and by 95, you're in the NCAA tournament first time ever. I mean, how, how does that happen so quick? I mean, I, I, don't, I think it takes time. Like, you did it in a hurry. How did it happen so quick? Well, I didn't. I thought it took a long time. But no, it, uh, it, we just, uh, I think we had a set of the way we did things that put people in a situation where they could like to play and they could develop. You know, I, I always stress two things. Uh, to survive and to do right by the game itself. Uh, I came from a baseball family, umpires more than anything else. And, and I felt like you had to emphasize two things and not let politics or anything else get in the way, human growth and development and winning. You got to win to survive and to justify your existence. You've got to have human growth and development. But it's easy to say that, but you, you went 23 consecutive tournament appearances and, and a lot of programs out there that are built on development, they're not going to show that type of consistency of winning every year. Like you had both, like you're developing guys and also winning and, and it's something to talk about it and say it, but like you actually did it. So, you know, do you feel like it was your practices that were different or how you handled the guys that were different? What do you feel like set you apart than some of the other guys out there? Because people talk about development and winning all the time, but they don't actually show it on the field and results. Well, everything we did was basically game speed. Yep. Our drills, you know, were, we did our drills with runners. Just don't go through the drill. You got runners. 
we did game three drills. In fact, I wrote a chapter one time for it. And when they insisted that I would lose all uh, rights to it, I didn't publish it. Uh, so that was really uh, the thing they wanted me to write the chapter about was uh, game speed drills and uh, everything. One year at San Jack, we got batting cage <clears throat> and uh, we quit hitting because we were letting the kids come over and just use it all the time. And they got real good at hitting 65 mile an hour fastballs because they were throwing to each other. I said, that's over. I said, from now on, it will be variable speed batting practice. I taught every infielder how to cut the ball and change speeds, and they threw to each other. And uh, that's the year at San Jack where we won the national championship game 22 to 4. That's how good we were with the bats. And the real change from bad hitting at midseason was variable speed batting practice. Yeah, trying to get each other out, right? Yeah. Yeah, to get ready for the game. And to make adjustments. Yep, and, and you'll have a hard time telling people that now because people don't want to buy into it. But say you had a guy not going hard at practice and we're not practicing at full speed. What were some of the things that you do with your teams to, to help that along? Um, you know, I, we, I was on a show yesterday morning and we talked about running a little bit. And I, I still think there's value or holding people accountable. However you want to hold your your players accountable, I think you have to do that. You know, what were some of the things that you'd use from an accountability standpoint with your teams? Well, everybody said I was very demanding, but I always believed uh, I, I used it for all my career before I, I found out it had a name back in uh, around 1995, the sandwich method. In other words, you, you tell them how good they could be, then you tell them how bad they are, and then you once again tell them you know they can do it. I probably, I used it so much that my wife found out about it and, and we would have talks and she would say, don't you sandwich me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's, it's a, it's a humanitarian thing. Really. You don't want people to leave your office feeling bad. And how can they feel bad if they leave your office and you just have to throw them, tell them you could be wonderful, but you got to put in the labor for sure. What do you feel like was a separator for all those guys that did make it to the big leagues, maybe out of the guys that didn't, besides talent? What, what were the separators for those guys that actually made it? Well, one was injuries. You know, that would put a halt to just about everything. And the other, you know, uh, you know, maybe they didn't <clears throat> want it quite as much. Nobody ever wanted it more than Clements. He worked harder than any athlete I ever had. I'd... At San Jack, the year he was there, I would, uh, after practice, come in and I always did the mound myself. I wouldn't let anybody else touch it and except him because he would be out there in the outfield doing all these crazy drills. And then he'd come in and ask if he could help me with the mound. I'd give him a little something. I'd move the dirt over there or something. I just didn't want anybody to mess it up. But uh, that commitment, you know, they, they think everybody's just got it. They're going to make it. Well, some are so good that that's true. You know, Richie Allen, Dick Allen, who I played with, he could hit the ball harder than anybody I ever saw. So he, he was going to make it, and he could run. And I played for some other guys that, well, yeah, they were going to make it. But I played with some Hall of Famers or coach like Roger should be a Hall of Famer. He played in the top five of everybody that ever pitched. 
And, uh, you know, they worked hard. Nolan Ryan worked hard. I threw 11 years with a, threw batting breaks Astros for 11 years while I was coaching. And, and Nolan, I'd go in and lift weights and there he'd be after, you know, after warmups and everything, he'd be, Nolan worked hard. You know, you got things going at Rice. How did you then sustain sustain the type of success that you had? Because I think it's human nature. Okay, you get things going. It, the program's never had any success before you show up, and then you kind of get things going. How, how come you didn't back off? I think people kind of get full of themselves once they start to have success. What allowed you to just keep sustaining and keep going and, and driving the program forward? Well, obviously, I love to coach, uh, and everybody wants to be relevant, and uh I knew at Rice, you know, there was, there's a Rice had great success in football in the 40s and 50s, and they still want that more than anything else. And they did when I was there. So if you wanted to survive at Rice, you want to make a good living, which they didn't pay like some other places, but you you had to win. And uh, I was poor a long time, and I didn't want to retire in poverty. <laughs> That's almost what you sign up for in the beginning, isn't it? That, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money and, and you got to make some sacrifices to get there. And then, you know, some guys never get there, but hopefully you get that opportunity if you stay in it long enough. And I think that's hard on the younger generation right now to really grasp guys like you, guys that I've interviewed for the Hall of Fame class, uh, really all the sacrifices that you had to make, at, you know, as a young coach with a family, you know, trying to stay in it as long as you can. Um, you know, any tips for young coaches out there right now and those the initial parts of it of trying to hang in there um, when maybe things get a little bit rough in the beginning? Well, I've had um, <clears throat> more than one person ask me, how do you get to be successful at your level? And uh, I said, well, I th you work 84 hours a week and you don't take any vacations <laughs> for 10 years. Then you can get a gauge of whether you might be able to do it if you work 84 hours a week for 10 years and don't take any vac vacation. You can see if you want to stay anyway. Were there any differences? I love that, by the way. I'm going to I'm gonna keep that. Um, what were the biggest differences for you at the end than in the beginning when you first started? Well, uh, you know, I think Rice became complacent. And as, uh, as the uh, atmosphere changed, environment change, you know, people like Vanderbilt came down and looked at what we were doing and, and mo somewhat modeled after us. The coach said they were modeling after us. And uh, <clears throat> then people started putting a whole lot of effort into baseball and it became tougher to recruit for that reason. Although we kept up with the field pretty good. We, Reckling Park is a fine ballpark, tribute to Tommy Reckling, a former baseball player at Rice. But it become more difficult. I thought it was doable, and I tried to convince them of certain things they needed to do to stay there. But I don't think the drive to stay there was, or either they didn't believe me, which I knew. I mean, I could see it. You could see what people were doing. I mean, Vanderbilt, according to a lot of people, has more scholarship aid, and it's legal aid. Yeah, it's legal aid. Anybody can do it. With inno innovation. Yes. You know, and they're in the SEC. Now, if a team is doing that and they have virtually the same academic reputation that Rice has, and you're putting so much more into it, and you're in the SEC, and that's not the only school like that either. Yep. And uh, I tried to get them to uh, keep up, but 
You know, uh, the guy named uh, Boyd Nation. Did yes. you heard that yep. name? Oh, yeah. I was a big Boyd Nation fan. He first started D1 baseball there. It's, um, you know, I had the RPI. You know, he's he really yeah. started all of it. I think a lot of the college baseball writers owe him a little bit because he, he really started everything. Yeah, that was in my sweet spot when I first started, when I was in coaching. Yeah, well, he was not a big fan of mine, but they did an algorithm or whatever you call these things that he does. He... I don't think they thought it was going to turn out like it did, but they started with the um, first year of Super Regionals, which was 99, I think. And he went through uh, 2007, and Rice was the number one baseball program in America yep. for that period, yep. according to Boyd Nation, for God's sake. He, he computed the ISRs, yes. looked at the championships, the appearances in Omaha, and all that, and came to the conclusion, and the SEC agreed with it. Yeah, yep. I mean, SEC agrees that we were the number one program. I, well, I don't think you can argue with that with that consistency. And how many times you went to the World Series, and how many straight championships, and conference championships, and tournament championships? Uh, I don't think there's any program out there in that that time can say that they stacked up with what you guys did at Rice during that time. Nobody can say that. But there wasn't a great, great, you know, we still, I was paid well. I had, in fact, uh, because of what we had accumulated in support, not from the top, but from people around us, we had a guy uh, two years before I retired that raised $300,000 and we went to Cuba. And uh, unfortunately, Castro died, so we only got to play one game. But we got to see Cuba for seven days before we came back because we didn't come back early. It may have been even 10. I'm not sure. But uh, that was a great thing. So we still had an awful lot of support financially uh, in that way. But as far as uh, expanding need base, which they've done since I left, they they really expanded it since I left, or field improvements, which they finally did. We had the money for the field improvements they made three years before they ever used it to improve the field. And after I left, it was improved. So they did some of the things, uh, but you know, it's still hard now because you're not in a power league and that makes it even harder and uh, to recruit. Everybody wants to play in the SEC. Everybody wants to play in big 12, Pac-12. I would. I asked uh, my booster club one right a year before I left, I, I explained the way it was. And I asked one of my top boosters, where he, where would you go to school? And he said, Vandy. <laughs> <laughs> After I explained it all to him, he said, I'd go to Vanderbilt. And he was a former player at Rice. Coach, do you feel like building Reckling Park is maybe your, your biggest legacy with Rice's program? Or is it the winning or, or the stadium? Is Do you feel like that's your biggest legacy with Rice's program? Oh, I think it's a record for me. Yeah. <clears throat> that's what meant everything to me. And because I even said that to the AC, to the athletic director who decided he would not extend my contract an extra year, I said, what are you going to do about the record? Yeah. There's nothing you can do about that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What do you feel like makes a great coach? Um, I think you have to have a deep down genuine feeling and understanding for what the players are going through. Experience means everything. You know, experience, uh, passion, 
some great man one time said that intuition is the most sophisticated form of reasoning. Listen to what I just said. And now people don't, they're more into analytics. Well, I agree with analytics. I really do. But a guy like Earl Weaver, one of the great managers of all time, you know that he could compute things in his head that they take, they've got to plug into the computer and everything else. And he computes, he computed instantly. Well, because you've seen a lot of games. I, I've said oh. it a lot. You know, you can't discount the fact that someone has seen that many games, watched that many players. Their brain wiring is lined quicker. They're going to be able to process much quicker than, than – and, again, that's nothing about being young. We were all young at one point. But the guys that yeah. have been around it and have seen it, they can make quicker decisions because they their, their wiring works faster. Well, and I think uh, both is great. I, I like the analysts. Theo Epstein, uh, you know, one of the great uh, analysts, um, you know, now he's got 20 years of experience or 30, I guess. That's scary, isn't it? To think how he's got that many years of experience. (laughs) He used to not value intuition at all. Now he values it because he's got it. You see what I'm saying? Yes, for sure. Yeah. So what made great assistance for you? I mean, you you are a great head coach. What do you feel like made a great, a, a great assistant for you? Well, I wanted assistants that would not only carry out, they knew that I knew what I was talking about. I did not want them to feel that in the office, they couldn't come in and question something that was done. Because what good are you if you don't, if you're not a good advisor as well as a coach? The idea was you never question what I do on the field because that's insubordination. But in my office, that's not the way it is. We're working together for the, for the best outcome. So, well, well, they have a little, probably a little better pulse on the players than the head coach, just because they're going to get, they're going to have different conversations with the players than the head coach. So they, they should feel free to speak up in the office at times because they may have a little better feel what's going on with the squad than the head coach, just because the head coach has to make those, those personnel decisions. There was one time I asked him, I said, uh, I want you both to make a lineup because I, I'm not doing very well. I want to see. I want to put mine down. I'm gonna put you two put yours down, and then I'm gonna look at it. Well, I took I took one of theirs and made the lineup. How did How did it work out? Good. It was the right one. <laughs> did you ever have your players write that in every once in a while? You ever ask the players what they felt uh, like? Other issues like that. I mean, you know. I had them do things like that drills where you would say, who's the worst team guy on the, who's the best team guy. And yeah. it was private. And then I would remind that guy that was the worst team guy that he had been chosen. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And that changed behavior. Things like that would change behaviors. Do you have any fail forward moments, maybe something along the way that you thought was going to set you back, but you look back now and maybe it was the best thing that ever happened to you? Well, in uh, 1986, I interviewed uh, Jim Gilligan was leaving Lamar. In fact, he was going to coach a pro independent pro team for Bill Murray, of all people, in Utah. I think it was Salt Lake. And so the Lamar job was open. So I applied, and they called my athletic director, San Jack, and said, you better get another coach. It was their intent. 
But then someone stepped in and I did not get the job. And I think it turned out better because of that. It's awesome, isn't it? Because probably, probably at the time you're like, okay, I missed my opportunity to be a Division One coach, and you look it up hurt. now, and it happened probably exactly how it was supposed to happen. Yeah, and I'm not sure about the other one. I had the opportunity. I applied at University of Houston twice, and believe me, you can win at the University of Houston. I felt like I might have another national championship or two if I'd have went to the University of Houston because they. They're like Cal State Fullerton in Texas. That's what the, they could be the same thing that Cal State Fullerton was. I know you're an avid reader. Are you still, you still read a lot? Oh, yeah. Every day? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, now especially I read a lot. Give me your top three books. Oh, um, I read science fiction. Have for years and years. Dune is probably my top book of all time. And for years, I wouldn't read it because I said, I don't want to read about a desert planet. And so Dune was one. And there was a, another one years back that is a classic called The Stars My Destination by a guy named Alfred Bester. And I don't know why two science fiction books stand out in my mind, because I read mysteries. Uh, the first book that Harlan Coben wrote. I don't know where you name, know the name Harlan Coben. He's a, kind of a mystery writer, has been for years, best-selling author. Uh, I think it was called Tell No Lies or something like that. It was one of my favorite mysteries of all, because it got me to reading Harlan Coben, and I read every book he ever wrote after that. So you can see that I'm a fiction guy. Yeah, I was going to ask you, any nonfiction at all, or is it mostly fiction? I read a biography on Stonewall Jackson that I loved, because Stonewall Jackson was pretty much insane. But he was a great general. I used some of the stuff he did. He couldn't get his troops to move quickly enough in the Shenandoah Valley, where he made his reputation. I don't know whether you know much about the Civil War, you're going to know way more. I, I have studied it, but not enough to... I know where you're talking about, because I, I lived on the East Coast for four years, and I'm here now, so I know that area that you're talking about, and I do know Stonewall Jackson, but I love that you, you dove into history to, to pick up some things with your with your team. That Let me coaching. tell you this one thing. He couldn't get him removed. And, you know, he, he was... Uh, he built his reputation with what's called foot cavalry. In other words, he could get his troops from one place to the other quicker than anyone else. Well, they weren't moving. So finally one morning he walks by his colonels and they weren't moving. They were supposed to move at eight. He said, throw him in chains, the colonel. And they did it. Guess what happened? They started moving, they, I bet. They started moving. <laughs> it, was, it was more than one colonel that he threw in chains. <laughs> uh, so, you know, sometimes you've got to be demanding. You know, did you take anything from the science fiction books or mystery books into coaching, or was it more as a release for you to read fiction books? Was it a way to get away maybe, or, or did you carry over some, some things into coaching that you got from your, your, your fiction books? Well, some people believe the only truth you find is in fiction, yeah. believe it or not, because the author lets you know how he really feels about things. Uh, I think uh, science fiction in particular – uh, kept me with an open mind because I came from an area era when people were not very open-minded. You know, I was raised in the late forties, right after world war II. I was like 
12, 13, 14, uh, 15. Very conservative state. I mean, you were raised very, in a very conservative very. state. And uh, I think uh, science fiction opened my mind and some of the people I've played with in professional baseball uh, opened my mind. You can look it up. Look up Dave Roberts sometime because he was a great friend of mine, a Panamanian African. He, could, he was fluid in, fluent in two both languages, no accent at all. And one year after he got out of the United States, he won the Triple Crown in Japan. David Roberts, I think David L. Roberts, something like that. Anyway, but anyway, uh, I roomed with him in pro ball. And anytime I th said something that he viewed was untoward, he would say, Wayne, listen to yourself. He got me straightened out completely. It's awesome. How, how early did reading start for you? Was it something that was instilled in you at an early age or did you pick it up as you went? I read James Fenimore Cooper's the Pathfinder and all those those books by him when I was like 13. So 13 is when you really started to dive into it. Yeah, well, maybe a little earlier. Grimm's Fairy Tales before that. <laughs> My mom did a good job with me. We went to the library all the time growing up. I still have that routine. Um, that was one of the saddest things for me with COVID is not being able to go to the library because I would go every Monday and um, it's at least open now. You got to be in quick, but that's what, still one of my routines is I go to the library every every Monday now. That was my sanctuary going up, growing up was the library. I loved it. Yep. What about baseball resources out there that, that you used in coaching that you felt like would help some coaches out there now that you used? Well, you know, there's several books uh, on baseball that, pretty much cover everything, and, and most of it is good. Weinstein wrote a book, a guy out there, he, he wrote a really big book. He's sharp, man. Jerry Weinstein's very sharp. Yeah, and I always had that handy. Uh, that's one of them, and, uh, you know, that's that was one of my big sources to look at. And, of course, I had Austin's uh, book. Uh, that he wrote about the Dodgers and the way he did things. And believe me, that's still very valid. Walston's, uh, what what did he call his book? It's a baseball book, Walter Alston. It was like the Bible for a long time. And I was one of the first people to buy Bill James' book. It's odd that my athletic director indicated I should be more of an analyst when I, I bought J Bill James' book <laughs> when it came out. <laughs> I mean, the first one, and I read everything he wrote, everything. So I was a, a disciple. What were the biggest things with Bill James when you, you first got into it that stuck out? Or were it th was it things that you kind of already knew, but he was maybe defining it a little bit more? That's it. He validated what we, some things really that I, I grew up, uh, my dad said, if you can reach it, hit it. You know what I mean? And Bill James validated one of the reasons I didn't play longer in the big leagues. First of all, I didn't get my eyes fixed early enough and uh, I didn't see real well. So to avoid striking out, uh, people used to say, you got an advantage on the curveball. You swing right in the middle of the blur. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. But uh, the thing was, uh, yeah, uh, he, he basically validated on base percentage and uh things like that he did it what does it mean to you to be inducted into the abca hall of fame 
Well, everybody wants their career validated, and that is a big validation of the work you did. Everybody wants to believe that they were relevant at one time, and uh, that's part of it. And I've always respected and always went to a lot of conventions and uh, all of that. Who got you involved with the ABCA? I can't even recall. It was just the thing to do. You know, somebody sent me a letter and said, you need to join it and back at San Jag. So I said, I agree. I want to join anything that supports college baseball. I'm in it, you know. What are some final thoughts, Coach? Something out there to help other coaches? Well, I I think some of them we already addressed. I think you can't. In fact, I even had a great coach, and he's still coaching. I don't want to mention him, but I got on him. I said, you know, you're not giving enough positives, you know, because everybody knew that I gave a lot of negatives, but I also gave a lot of positives. He said, what do you mean? I said, when they do something really good, you don't encourage it. He said, well, they're supposed to do that, though. I said, I don't care. We're all human. You need to start. And he did. And he's become a better coach because of it. You have to, you have to inject. I, I don't think you can do without corrections, without demanding. You've got to do it. All the great football coaches did that. Look at Lombardi, for God's sake. Uh, you know, I even go all the way back. Not as much today because it's criticized. You, you can do it, but you got to be more careful or they'll boot you out the door. I think you have to explain a little bit more now. You know, I I think you really have to explain why a kid, you can still hold kids accountable. You can still be hard on kids. They just, they need a little more explanation of why you're doing what you're doing now. Exactly. Exactly. Because basically we had a uh, zoom last night with a bunch of kids from the 85 uh, San Jack team. And basically the thing you said is coach, as much as you yelled at us, we knew you loved us. So, yep, that's a great thing. They know that you're home free. Well, coach, I can't thank you enough for jumping on Tanya. You're there in the back. Thank you for getting everything set up. Um, tremendous. So, uh, I'm again, congratulations on going into the hall of fame and, um, let me know if you need anything. Okay. I really appreciate this. I like this. Okay. Yeah. Anytime (laughs) coach, man, this, this was exciting for me. You know, I, I always looked up to you. Um, you know, I went to a private school. My dad coached for 23 years at Evansville, a small private school. And That's I just think Rice was the the standard, you know, for, for small private schools, Rice was the standard for what you did. And as consistent as you were, um, I don't think anybody can can top what, what you did. I for me, you're you're in the top five of all coaches, regardless of sports. Um, out there. So I'm, I'm excited that I got a chance to talk to you, coach. I certainly appreciate it. Yep. Thank Thank you. Congrats again to coach Graham and Tanya for his induction into the ABCA hall of fame as a former coach and son in the game of baseball. You appreciate the role the wife and mom plays in the coaching journey. Coach Graham was someone I always looked up to because he built one of the best programs in the country at a small private institution. As an avid reader myself, I loved how coach Graham used reading to better himself I hope I'm as sharp as he is when I'm his age. So many points will stay with me from this one. Survive and do right. And intuition is the highest form of intelligence are two big ones. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at coachb underscore abca, 
Instagram at RyanBrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Don't have time